I'm Joel Parker. And I'm Beth Bartell. This is KGNU's How on Earth for Tuesday, November 22nd, 2011. It's the science and technology show that makes you smarter. Coming up, we take a look at wild turkeys in North America. And we learn how light pollution at night can lead to air pollution during the day. During the day, because of the city lights destroying NR3 molecules at night. And that was kind of the thing where people said, whoa, and we didn't know this before. We begin with a look at some of the recent news in science. What do Colorado and Pennsylvania have in common? A history of coal mining and a booming oil and gas industry. And a Temple University researcher may have something that can help us both. Chemist Daniel Strongen has spent eight years developing a method to treat acid mine drainage. Most treatment consists of using lime or another chemical to neutralize the acid already in the water. But Strongen says his method gets closer to the source. The method uses lipid molecules to bind to heavy metals. Acid mine drainage is caused by the decomposition of sulfide metals into sulfuric acid, so Strongen's lipids hit the metals before they have a chance to decompose. The lipid molecules form a hydrophobic, or water-repelling, layer, like a raincoat, which keeps out the water, oxygen, and bacteria that cause the metals to break down in the first place. Strongen says the benefits are threefold. Streams are cleaner, and the same method can hopefully be used to clean up wastewater from oil and gas drilling. And, rather than using fresh water for oil and gas drilling, drillers can use the now-clean mining drainage instead, saving more fresh water for the rest of us. The next mission to Mars is set to launch this week. The Mars Science Laboratory, referred to as MSL, is scheduled to launch this Saturday, November 26th, from Cape Canaveral in Florida. The nearly two-hour launch window opens at 8.02 in the morning, Mountain Time. The launch coverage is available on NASA TV, which can be accessed online at nasa.gov. MSL carries a car-sized rover called Curiosity, which is a laboratory on wheels. Curiosity carries 10 science instruments, including three cameras, four spectrometers, an environmental sensor, basically a weather station, and two radiation detectors. One of those radiation detectors, called RAD, has a Colorado connection. It was built by Southwest Research Institute and is run by scientists in the Boulder office. RAD will measure and identify all high-energy radiation on the Martian surface, such as protons, energetic ions, and various elements, neutrons, and gamma rays. The data will allow scientists to calculate the equivalent dose, a measure of the effect of radiation has on humans, to which future astronauts would be exposed on the surface of Mars, and to study the hazard presented by radiation to potential microbial life, past and present on Mars. The various spectrometers will search for and measure light elements, such as hydrogen, oxygen, and nitrogen, and compounds of the element carbon, including methane, that are associated with life, and explore ways in which they are generated and destroyed in the Martian ecosphere. The rover will measure these gases by using a laser to ablate the rocks and release their gases that will be studied by the spectrometers. 
More information about MSL can be found on their website at mars.jpl.nasa.gov slash MSL. tuned to How on Earth, the KGNU Science and Technology Show. I'm Beth Bartel. In honor of Thanksgiving, we're going to talk about the turkeys who will probably not end up on your dinner plate this Thursday, the wild turkey. If you think wild turkeys are just like the domestic ones we see waddling alongside roads, you're wrong. Here to tell us more about wild turkeys in North America is Stan Baker, regional wildlife biologist for the National Wild Turkey Foundation, which is actually one of the largest conservation organizations in the U.S. Stan, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. So we talked a little bit yesterday, and, um, and you have some interesting stories to tell. I was wondering if you could start out by telling us about the story of wild turkeys in North America. Yes, uh, at the time, uh, of course, uh, this time of the year, Thanksgiving time, uh, we, uh, wild turkeys and turkeys in general are a topic of discussion. Uh, at the time the pilgrims f- first came to North America, uh, we estimate there was probably uh, somewhere in the neighborhood of about 10 million wild turkeys in North America. Huh. And what was their, what was their range at that time? Well, their range, uh, there's uh, five different subspecies across uh, North America, and uh, the predominant subspecies is the eastern wild turkey, which uh, uh, its habitat type uh, is closely tied to uh, forests, and uh, they covered about two-thirds of the uh, United States at that time. And then, and then what happened? They didn't, uh, they didn't quite thrive all through the ages. Well, uh, uh, they were put on the dinner plate, if you will, uh, was one of the things. Uh, uh, They were very available for the uh, settlers, and it was a great uh, food source for them. Uh, Unregulated hunting, as well as they were clearing uh, the forests at that time, and so their habitat, a lot of the habitat was lost along with the uh, unregulated hunting. And when um, when was the low in the turkey population, and how low did it actually get? We think uh, somewhere in the 1920s, 1930s, the population may have dipped to as low as 30,000 total across uh, North America. And uh, as of as of recent as 1973, uh, they had climbed to 1.3 million turkeys. And today, we estimate there's uh, more than 7 million wild turkeys across North America. And uh, we like to think of it as the greatest conservation success story of all time. What, um, what was responsible for the, the success of, of bringing turkeys back to North America? Well, probably the greatest thing was the ability to live trap the birds uh, during the winter time, when they congregate, uh, they were able to come into food sources and then a variety of traps. We have walk-in traps, uh, drop nets, rocket nets, 
and the ability to trap these birds, these wild birds, and then take them to suitable habitat uh, was probably the biggest boon for the uh, overall restoration of the wild turkey. Uh, attempts to pen raise the birds uh, failed. Uh, you just really need the wild turkeys to, uh, with their with their instincts, to be able to uh, pass that on to the, uh, the young poults. And so the hens uh, imprint, as we call it, uh, pass on those instincts and uh, that ability. But pen raised birds just do not develop the uh, wild characteristics and the instincts uh, needed to survive. So you are in Utah, but you're responsible for Utah and Colorado. Um, could you tell us a little bit about the wild turkeys in Colorado, the species we have, and um, and what their habitat's like? Yes, the, uh, we have two uh, species, two subspecies of wild turkeys in Colorado. And uh, the native or the indigenous uh, varieties that were uh, in Colorado uh, were the Merriams. Merriams are closely associated with ponderosa pine and oak brush habitat, uh, commonly found along the Front Range in Colorado, and also uh, a large extent of southern Colorado has this habitat type. Uh, the Rio Grande wild turkey is uh, the other subspecies that's found in Colorado. It's found in the eastern plains along the eastern rivers, such as the South Platte, and the Arkansas and some of the other uh, drainages in the east, eastern plains. And they're closely tied to cottonwood trees, uh, bottoms, and uh, adjacent uh, uh, agricultural lands. But uh, turkeys need trees. Uh, they roost in trees at night. Uh, that helps their survival, uh, keeps them free of some danger being able to uh, get up off the ground at night to roost. How can you uh, how can you tell the two apart? Is it easy to tell the two apart? Well, n not really. Uh, both Rio Grandes and Merriams uh, do share a lighter uh, tail feathers. Their coloration. Uh, Rio Grandes tend to have more of a tan uh, tail feathers, where uh, Merriams are uh, somewhat more brighter white tail feathers. But uh, there's different uh, coloration phases of the two and. Uh, and they do occasionally uh, overlap, and they will uh, breed, and and uh, so you'll end up with uh, hybrids in some cases. But for the most part, uh, it's their habitat type that uh, is most frequently uh, determined uh, which subspecies, where they're located. So most of us have this idea of uh, the turkey as this fat, waddling, sort of awkward creature, and um, that would be the picture of the domestic wild turkey. Um, you told me some interesting things about um, what wild turkeys are actually like. Could you tell us a bit about how the wild turkeys actually differ from the domestic turkeys? Yes. Wild turkeys, uh, of course, are much leaner, uh, sleeker. Uh, they have a great ability to both run and fly, which most people don't uh, realize. Yeah. How fast? How fast can they run and fly? Well, they can actually uh, they can run up to about 15 miles per hour. Uh, they have very powerful legs, and uh, at any given moment uh, when they're flying, if they or when they're running, if they decide the uh, uh, better option is to fly, they can fly, and they can fly up to 
between 45 and 55 miles an hour for up to uh, a mile in length. So uh, they're very uh, adaptive, uh, and this, over the years, this instinct uh, of survival and escape from predators has enabled them to develop this uh, very athletic build, if you will, compared to the domestic turkey, which uh, they cannot fly and they don't run very well. So uh, their uh, domestic turkeys are bred for the dinner table. And uh, over the years, the uh, wild turkey, it's got incredible eyesight. Its eyesight is up to six times greater than uh, human eyesight. Wow. So all these abilities is, is uh, truly what's uh, kept it wild and, and uh, being able to survive in the wild. Well, Stan, thank you so very much for joining us today. Um, we hope you have a great Thanksgiving. Will you be eating a wild turkey on Thursday? You know, I will. I have one in the freezer. I'm going to be uh, thawing out, and uh, they are very, uh, they're very good on the dinner table. <laughs> great. Well, enjoy it, and thank you very much again for joining us. That was Stan Baker of the National Wild Turkey Federation. You're tuned to How on Earth, the KJNU Science and Technology Show. I'm Joel Parker. Whether you're on the Vegas Strip or Arizona's isolated Kitt Peak Observatory or looking down at the night Earth from the International Space Station, it's plain as day that the lights are on. Astronomers and lovers of dark skies have long decried light pollution, but CU scientist Harold Stark has discovered that all those lights can foul the air not only in the night, but also in the day. KGNU's Jim Pullen shares the story. CU's Harold Stark and his team have been studying atmospheric pollution over the skies of L.A. since the early 2000s. They needed to fly their instrument platform, a multi-engine P-3 Orion, at low altitudes in the dark over L.A. The pilots were worried there wasn't enough light. Um, so they did a flight into the night at some point, and uh, just to study if they could basically um, safely fly. And they came back and saying, gee, it's so light out here, we don't have any problem. And once again, serendipity led to new research questions. And that kind of prompted one of my colleagues to say, have you ever looked how bright it really is? And that's when I said, well... I've thought about it, you know, but I've never really tried hard enough, so let me try. Originally, I thought, well, great, night flights are coming up, I can go to sleep. I don't have to work, right. because those things are pretty tough times, those, uh, those fuel campaigns. So then the first flight, uh, full nighttime flight, I turned on the instrument, and I was surprised how much signal I had, and that, that's basically where, where the whole thing got started. The first numbers that we got out were basically just uh, just an intensity of city lights of, of L.A., um, flying over LA. That, that, was the, that was the original data point. Although the lights were 10,000 times dimmer than the sun, they were still 25 times brighter than the moon. There was enough light to significantly change the nighttime chemistry. There's one molecule that's prone to getting destroyed by sunlight, uh, and that's NO3, the nitrate radical. So I knew that was the only candidate that even had a remote chance of reacting to the city lights. And the nitrate radical is the centerpiece of air chemistry at night. It is the key molecule, basically, for nighttime chemistry. It reacts with lots of compounds present in the nighttime atmosphere. For example, volatile organic compounds, 
those are basically organic molecules emitted from cars or uh, gas stations or general industry. These pollutants can can do different things. They are a little toxic themselves. Some some of them they could form aerosols with other uh, compounds together or just themselves by being processed. What the nitrate radical does is it reacts with them, gets consumed in the process, and basically changes them. It sometimes removes them from the atmosphere. It sometimes converts them into something else. So the NO3 molecules that are removed are not able to scrub as many VOC pollutants. And the atoms that make up the nitrate radicals are not destroyed by interacting with the light, but move on to play a devious role. So the lights convert the nitrate radicals into a different molecule, a nitrogen dioxide, NO2 molecule. And that is not that reactive at night. So um, that's kind of how these this remove reduced reactivity at night happens, that we just have fewer of these nitrate radicals. But on the other hand, we have also a few more of these NO2 nitrogen dioxide molecules present. And their importance changes drastically when the sun comes up. The city lights change the nitrate radical into a molecule that can survive all night and that plays a critical part in the daytime air chemistry. During daytime now, we're talking daytime, sunlight is up. Um, NO2 gets destroyed by sunlight and the products of that can form ozone. The other ingredient we need, so we have two so far, we have the NO2, which we call now the active daytime pool or the formerly inactive nighttime pool. Um, we have sunlight, that's the second ingredient. And the third ingredient, again, are our volatile organic compounds. Uh, the pollutants, the emissions from cars, trucks, industry, what have you. Nature emits quite a few of those as well. But if we spin the full circle, the city lights made this inactive nighttime pool larger. This larger pool now becomes the active daytime pool. So we have more NO2, more fuel, basically, um, for that reaction there. Then we get sunlight. Then we get uh, uh, VOCs. So that means we could potentially make a little more ozone during the day because of the city lights destroying NO3 molecules at night. And that was kind of the thing that where people said, whoa, and we didn't know this before. Um, so that's the qualitative fact that we found with this with this research. And that's basically the reason why we were able to, to publish it um, as a new result in, in Nature Geoscience. Ozone close to the Earth is different from the ozone high in the stratosphere. The stratospheric ozone forms a layer that protects the Earth from ultraviolet radiation. Ozone in the lower part of the atmosphere, the troposphere, is a pollutant. Uh, tropospheric ozone, to start with that, it's a health hazard. Um, if we have high levels, uh, people with asthma have trouble uh, dealing with this. So it's a regulated compound by the EPA. Cities have to follow the standards, and if they're above, as Denver, I think, is for the last few years now, they have to, to try to reduce it. So it's not just an interesting molecule for chemists like me. It also really is a, is a acknowledged health hazard. Although the fundamental observation that more NO2 can lead to more ozone is correct because of other factors, sometimes ozone increases and sometimes not. The problem, though, is it's a very complicated mechanism. As simple as I described it, um, there are a lot of feedback mechanisms in this ozone production. 
that can lead to higher ozone levels with higher amounts of this NO2, and sometimes they lead to lower levels because other molecules basically get removed before they can even get towards ozone production or something like that. It's, it's, a, it's a really complicated thing. It involves hundreds of chemical reactions, basically, um, that are in there. The third important finding was that satellite data could be used to predict the loss of the nitrate radical at night around the world. It's kind of a logical question that one would ask. It's like, well, so it's L.A. Is L.A. the brightest spot on the Earth and the biggest? So could it matter in other areas of the Earth? And for that, we used a different data set that, um, fortunately for us, was just released in 2010 as well. And that data set is from Chris Elvidge at the National Geophysical Data Center and his team. It is immortalized in the poster, The Nighttime Lights of the World. Yeah, it's well known. Many scientists have it in their office. I have one, of course, here. And they gave me their data so I could basically compare the light intensities that they measured from a satellite uh, with the light intensities that we measured from an airplane directly over L.A. We were basically able to make a one-to-one comparison between the satellite measurements and our measurements just from the light levels now. So we're not talking about the chemistry at this point. And that was a very linear relationship. So we can say when we saw twice as much light, the satellite would also have seen twice as much light. And this was fantastic for us because it allowed us to use this global satellite data set converted to this chemical destruction strength that we measured and make predictions globally if this effect could be stronger in other areas of the world. Well, we did that, and and we were able to see that L.A., is not, in fact, the brightest spot on Earth. There's, there's quite a few that are a factor of two, three, four brighter, which also means that this effect could be more important in other cities in the world. That was KGNU's Jim Pullen talking with Dr. Harold Stark, a research scientist at the Cooperative Institute for Research on Environmental Sciences, or CERES. CERES is a joint program of the University of Colorado and NOAA, Dr. Stark took his Ph.D. in chemistry at the University of Göttingen in 2000. He is continuing to work on the effects of city lights on air pollution. Ozone is a political hot topic. In January 2010, the EPA recommended tightening limits for tropospheric ozone. In a letter to Senator Carper in July of 2011, Lisa Jackson, head of the EPA, said that the previous rules developed during the Bush administration were, quote, not legally defensible because they did not meet scientific scrutiny as required by law. In early September of this year, President Obama shocked environmentalists and apparently the EPA by telling the EPA to withdraw the new standards. He cited economic reasons. That's all for this edition of How on Earth. Today's show was produced by Beth Bartell and engineered by Ted Burnham. Our executive producer is Tom McKinnon. Our theme music was written and produced by Josh Cutler, a.k.a. Techler. Additional music today from Carmen Rizzo and Talking Heads. We understand there were some technical difficulties in today's show, and you may have missed part of the interview. But remember that the entire show is online, available at kgnu.org slash howonearth and howonearthradio.org. 
Send your feedback to the KGNU comment line at 303-447-9911. For How on Earth, the KGNU Science and Technology Show, I'm Beth Bartel. And I'm Joel Parker.